We are walking through the book of Ephesians. And I have challenged <coughs> you to really take some time over these next months and, and just really make this book a part of your life. A lot of things you can do with it. You can read it. You can study it, outline it, memorize it, meditate on it. And it has some of the most powerful, life-changing truths you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Let me start with a picture of a gal and just a quote. I need that picture of a gal up there. Dave, there, thank you. How many people know who this is? Okay, this is Ronda Rousey. She's probably the number one uh, UFC female fighter and uh, a big... Hoopla, if you were following that at all back in November, she met Holly Holm and was defeated in the fifth round of that fight with a kick to her head. She was later taken to a hospital, has since <coughs> recovered from that physically. I say that because this is a quote from her, and uh, I quote, honestly, my thought in the medical room as I was sitting in the corner was like, what am I if I'm not this? I literally sat there thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I am nothing. What do I do anymore? No one gives a blank about me anymore without this. And I thought, how sad. You know, many people there are out there who are excelling in some area of life, who are dedicated, who are determined, who often we admire, who are often making a lot of money, and who we might think, I've got it made, and then discover that all it takes is a kick to the head to totally destroy who you are. God never intended for a kick to the head to be able to do that to anyone. And so we're talking about, in this book today, we're, we're talking about an identity that goes way beyond any kick to the head or a kick to the gut or anything that life can throw at you. If you're finding your identity in something that's been taken away, then you're finding and looking for your identity in something far too shallow because God has something far deeper for us in each of our lives. We're going to look at that identity, an identity that's greater than our accomplishments, it's greater than all our sin, and so one day we will come before the Lord and we will come to heaven's gate and the heavenly TSA will meet us there and they'll ask for your identity and you'll take it out. You know what? It will be Christ's identity. And that's not a stolen identity. That's an identity that Christ has given us in him. That's why it says so many times in this book, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So we're going to talk this morning about spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. We're going to make it through verse 10 today, I promise. Unfortunately, we're not going to make it through the first sentence because the first sentence in the Greek language here starts in, in verse 3 and ends in verse 14. And so this is just an explosion of blessing and joy that Paul's just going to pour out. We're not going to be able to make it all the way through to get the full effect, but I, I count at least eight different blessings here that God has poured out into our lives. 
And I remind you, these are spiritual blessings. So when you think about your life, think about two things. Think about temporal blessings. Those are temporary things. Those are the things that are here today, but you may wake up tomorrow and they may be gone. Then there's spiritual blessings. Nothing can touch spiritual blessings. Nothing in all creation can take them away from you. They are absolutely secure. Absolutely secure. So when we talk about securities, this is what we're really talking about. Our spiritual blessings in Christ. So here we go. we're going to walk through them. And the first time we just looked at last Sunday, number one, he chose us, which means he chose you, us together to be holy and blameless in his sight. Holy and blameless in his sight. And the Bible says he did that before the creation of the world. He chose you to be holy and blameless in his sight. So here's God's vision for your life. That you could stand in and would be in the very presence of God, totally unhindered by anything. That you could stand there perfect and blameless before him. That was God's intent for your life. Now, I believe that my, that, I believe my salvation is secure. I believe it's secure. I, I don't think the question is, can you lose your salvation? The question is, can Christ lose you? And I think the answer to that question is no. If Christ chose you before the creation of the world, he's not going to lose you. And so once you're in Christ, once you're saved, you are secure in him. You have been born again into a new life. That's the analogy that we're given. You're, you're born into a new, new life. You may be a good kid or you, you may be a bad kid, but you're not unborn, Okay. Once you're born into the kingdom, you are in. <clears throat> if you're not in, you were never born. And so we are secure in Christ. I love the disciples when, when Jesus was talking one day and there were a lot, of a lot of people that were kind of spectators, but they weren't really following Christ. And on that day, Jesus said some hard stuff and they all walked away. And the only ones left were the 12 disciples whom Christ had chosen. And Jesus looked at him and he said, so what about you guys? <clears throat> Are you going to walk away too? And, and I love the response. He said, Lord, to who would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so where would you go? Where would you go? And so we find that this is a God who from the very beginning of time desired that we would be holy and blameless. In Colossians 1.22 it says, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, and here's the purpose, to present you, think of that word, God wants to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from any accusation. So God wants to present you. So he, he comes, he takes you, he wants to take you before the Father and say, Father, Here's, this, is, this is my son, this is your son, this is your daughter. These are the ones that I purchased with my blood. Or another analogy is that Christ will come before the Father and present you as his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And so these are, are very powerful images to get into your mind when you think of God's goal for your life. It's to one day present you before the Father, holy and blameless and perfect in his sight. That's the first one, to be holy and blameless. Here's the second one. 
He predestined us for adoption as sons. Now, when he says sons there, he's, he's <clears throat> not excluding daughters, but he uses this because in that day and in that culture, unfortunately, women were, were not valued as much as men. That's one of the things that, that Jesus came to do. And, and as Paul says, you know, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are all equal in him. But in this culture, the benefits to sons, especially in terms of adoption, uh, is a very powerful imagery. So he uses that term. But we are, we are adopted here as, as children of God, certainly. Predestined in love. This wasn't eeny, meeny, miny, mo. This wasn't duck, duck, gray duck. This was in love. Everything that God decided to do, he did in love. And so, in love, he predetermined this whole plan of adoption for us as sons and daughters. He thought of this before the world was created, even created. He knew that he was going to do this before the world was created. Now, in really important to understand here the, the power of this imagery in Greek culture. In, in Greek culture, adoption was common because if, if you were a male and you had a family, and one of three things happened. Either you had a son who died, you had a son who died, that would be one situation, or maybe you, didn't, you couldn't have a son, or thirdly, if you had, for some reason, disowned your son. So you were without a son. It was very common in that day to adopt a male to fulfill that role so that the family, the heirs, you have a, a male heir through which everything was passed. That's the way it was in that culture. And so adoption was very common. So if you were, if you were a Roman citizen or Greek and, and you were there and you didn't have a son, where would you look to find someone to adopt? Well, you're probably not going to go to another family. Somebody else is not going to want to give up one of their children. And so they were often adopted out of slavery. And so maybe someone's parents had died and they ended up in slavery or someone had run into a, a huge debt that they couldn't pay. In those days, you had to go into slavery. It was very common. And so adoption most often took place out of the slave culture. And something very interesting happened when you were adopted. It was, it was quite a process uh, to be adopted in those days. But once you were adopted, you were viewed as a totally different person. I mean, one day you were, you know, being told what to do, sleeping in, in a... <clears throat> You know, maybe on a mat somewhere on the floor, and the next day, you're sleeping in a luxurious bed in a home of someone that had adopted you, and you are a totally different status. When you were adopted in those days, you fully took on complete status of the family you were adopted to. So if they were Roman citizens, you became a Roman citizen. If they were rich and whatever things went along with that in that culture, that became your privileges as well. So everything changed. Every debt that you had was canceled. It was like you didn't owe it anymore when you were adopted. That was how significant the change was. And interestingly, 
A father could disown a son born of his blood, but if you adopted a son, you could not disown that son. It was impossible. It was not legal to disown an adopted son. I just find this intriguing as you think about this analogy that God uses for us. I don't know how far he intended it to go, but you know, in one sense, in in that moment on the cross when Jesus took on our sin, Jesus said, my father, why have you forsaken me? It was almost like the father had disowned him in that moment. And perhaps there is a, perhaps God intended that analogy to carry through by which he disowned his own son and adopted, had the privilege of you and I being adopted into his family as sons whom he would never and would never disown. Powerful picture of this adoption. That's our second blessing here that's mentioned. We have been not only, uh, as we see, we have been adopted as sons. We've been holy and blameless. That was God's design from the very beginning. Thirdly, we have redemption, it says, through his blood. So this imagery goes back to the Exodus. So in the Exodus, the people are enslaved in Egypt. They're enslaved. God comes and he's going to take them out of, he's going to redeem them. He's going to, he's going to take them out of slavery. So how does he do it? Well, he, does, he starts bringing plagues against Pharaoh and the final straw, in the final straw, he sends the angel of death and he tells all of his Jewish, all the Jewish people, all of his people to take a unblemished lamb, to kill it, to put its blood on the door, and when the angel of death comes, he's going, to look at, he's going to look for the doors with the blood. And when he sees a door with blood, he's going to go, somebody already, something already died. I don't need to go in there and, and bring death because somebody, something already died. And it was the lamb which sufficed in that moment for the angel of death to pass over that house. Thus, we get the, the term Passover, which Jewish people celebrate even today. So this is taken, the, the redemption, that we have redemption, but notice, it's not through the blood of the lamb, it's redemption through his blood. Because ultimately, a lamb could not take your place. If somebody was going to take your place, it had to be another person as fully human as you are. And so Jesus came fully God, but fully human, And when he went on that cross and his blood was spilled, that was the blood that bought your redemption from the slavery. Now today, most of us aren't, we're not in the kind of slavery we would think back there, but if you want to think of an analogy, think of addiction and idolatry. Think of the things in our lives that we are enslaved to. And that's what Christ has come to deliver us from. So here's the situation. Here's a picture, number one. We were imprisoned with no way out. And what Christ did on that cross was he he opened up a brand new situation for us. It looks like this. The question is, is he going to walk out or not? Because I just mentioned that because some of us are not walking out. And the door has been opened to the prisons of our lives. And we... we, (coughs) We're standing there in the doorway 
And God is inviting us to walk out. He's given us the power to walk out. And so, this is a blessing that God is offering to us, that we, we walk out of the prisons of our lives and those things that enslave us and that we by faith believe that the power is there for us to do that. Redemption through his blood. Then he says the forgiveness of sins, which is very closely related with the redemption through his blood. I mean, what, what a blessing. There is no reason today why you should walk out of here with any condemnation in your life. If you walk out of here with condemnation in your life, it's because you don't, you don't understand this truth or you have an unrepentant heart. That's the only reason why you would walk out of here. And so if you're talking about things in your past, God is giving you a gift. It's the forgiveness through the blood of Christ which covers every past, present, future sin. I don't care if you're struggling. You know, Paul writes in, in Romans, he talks about his own struggle. He said, the things I want to do, I, I, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and I have this struggle. He said, oh, wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? And he answers his own question, praise be to God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that's the gift. The question is, do you want to receive it? So if there's something in your life that you're feeling guilty about, something ongoing sin in your life you're feeling guilty about today, the solution to that is a repentant heart. It's to say, okay, God, I want to turn away from that, and I want to pursue righteousness. Once you have done that, the guilt is now gone. Any guilt you feel after that is the guilt of the accuser. God gives you guilt to show you you need to change. He gives us guilt because he's trying to get us to understand something's wrong in our lives. Once we turn from that and begin pursuing the correct way that God has for us, then, then guilt has served its purpose. And so this gift of forgiveness is, is just so, so very powerful. And you know how he's done it? He's done it according to the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us. The word lavished, it's like you get, uh, you like ice cream? Okay, a bowl of ice cream, you know, you get two scoops and then, and then it's three scoops, but then it doesn't stop. Then it's four scoops. And just imagine a bowl holding as much ice cream as it can and scoops rolling off the side. That's the word lavish. It's like extreme, the most extreme generosity you can imagine. Filled to overflowing. That's what God has lavished on us, the riches of his grace. We're going to talk next week about why in the world God would do that for us. So he has lavished it upon us. I was reading this week of a a young man in a service down in Florida. And this is a young man. He had just found out. He he was working for Campus Crusade down there. Lived a tough life. He'd been on heroin for like six years and destroyed his body. And now he had cancer, terminal cancer, because of it. And... So he's, he's in this service, and the pastor's aware, and at the end of the communion service, he asks this young man uh, in his late 20s to get up and ask if he would 
say the benediction for the service. And the young man got up and he said, he kind of shared a little bit of his story. And he said, I'd like to sing the benediction today. He strummed a couple simple guitar, uh, guitar chords that he had. And then he sang, this song is a benediction. Some of you will recognize it, some of you won't. I am so glad that our Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he's given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. And this is the dearest, that Jesus loves me. Though I forget him and wander away, still he doth love me wherever I stray. Back to his dear loving arms would I flee when I remember that Jesus loves me. Oh, if there's only one song I can sing. When in his beauty I see the great king, this shall my song in eternity be. Oh, what a wonder that Jesus loves me. Well, here's the last one we have time for this morning. And this is a big one. You, you may not appreciate it until you think about it. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. It's a huge blessing. He did this in all wisdom and understanding. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that there's a wisdom of the world and then there's a wisdom that God gives us and that, that we as God's people are wiser than the people of the world. And so, you know, you're a young person here today. You're wiser as a believer, as a Christian today. You understand this? God reveals it to you. You're wiser than the physicists at, at NASA that, that make all the, that have all this wisdom about how to, they know how to put a man on the moon. But you know who put the moon up there. And you know why God put the moon up there. And you know the purpose in life. And you know where all of history is going. You know how many people today have no idea where things are going, or no idea why they're here, or no idea if, if there's any purpose in anything. But God has revealed to us the mystery of his will. And here it is, verses 9 and 10. He's revealing it to us. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. So here's what it is. To bring all things in heaven and on earth, together, under one head, even Christ. So what's going on in the world? God is bringing all things in heaven and all things on earth. Eventually, he's working towards this, this place in time, this age, where all things are under Christ, who's the head and the rule and the reign over all. That's where history is headed. I came across, I heard a quote <clears throat> a couple weeks ago and I wrote it down. I read this with, it's a good one to keep in mind with the coming elections this year. The world is not falling apart. The world is falling into place. The world's not falling apart. It's falling into place. There is a God who's bringing all things in heaven and on earth under one head. 
even Christ, and he is sovereignly working in history. And if you're a believer, you know what's going on. That's why the church is so important. Because the people that are going to be worshiping this Lord Jesus Christ is the bride, it's the church. It's the called out ones. It's the one to whom Paul is writing. So, how do we apply this this morning? Just a couple things. First of all, I think Paul here gives a really important point of application. You know, Paul is writing this incredibly upbeat, optimistic, encouraging letter from prison. He's in prison writing this letter. There's no sense of fear. There's no sense of worry. There's no poor me. And why is that? I think it's because Paul, as he wrote, has learned the secret of contentment. And you know what that is? The secret of contentment is keeping your eyes, set your minds on things above, not below. It's keeping your, your self grounded in these spiritual blessings in Christ. You know what Jesus said about the temporal ones? In this world, you will have trouble. Things are going to go wrong. It's going to happen this week. Some of you are just going to have a bad week temporally because that's the way life is. And God has promised us these spiritual blessings that, that nothing and no one can take away. And so to keep focused on the riches of God's grace in our life, you know, Paul's life was not easy. People hated him. Every, wherever he went, people hated him. They mobbed him. They beat him. They tortured him. He said, he said, I'm involved in shipwrecks. He had health issues in his life that he prayed about, and they didn't go away. But I only know of one time where Paul goes through any list of the, you know, the hardships of his life, and he does so to make the point he does so to make the point that it's really not an issue in his life because of the spiritual blessings that are his in Christ, those things that don't spoil, perish, or fade. They were chosen to be holy and to be adopted and to be redeemed and to be forgiven and to be revealed, you know, of the mystery of his will. And so these are Paul's words to us. Let me just conclude with a, a story. It, it relates to what we're saying. It's a little different, but it, <clears throat> you'll get it in the end here. It was written from an older lady looking back on her childhood. It was Easter 1946. And there were three kids and their mom, and their dad had died five years earlier, and things were really hard. But they never really viewed themselves as poor, and they had each other, and they wouldn't trade their family for anyone. Right before Easter, the pastor announced that this year at church they were going to take up a special collection, and uh, they were going to take up a collection for a, 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 a poor family. And so they got excited, and they said, tell you what, why don't we do this? Why don't we buy a 50-pound bag of potatoes, and let's just live off of those potatoes for the whole month? And then we could spend, we could save like 20 bucks in grocery. And, and let's, at night, let's turn off the lights and let's read by candlelight because then we could save some money in electricity. And they took these little cotton loop things you could buy for 15 cents and they, they made 
little pot holders and sold them for a buck a piece. And they worked all month and it was just the funnest month of the year for them. They got to the end of the month or the day before the offering and they went down and they cashed it all in and they came out with a three crisp $20 bills and a $10 bill. The next Sunday they went to church and it was raining and they didn't have, couldn't afford an umbrella so they, were, they walked and they were soaking wet when they got there. One girl had cut out pieces of cardboard and put them in the bottom of her shoes because she had holes in the bottom of her shoes. And they got to church and they sat down and the offering came by. Mom put in the $10 bill and each kid put in a crisp new 20. And they were just so excited for this family that they were going to help. They went home and that afternoon the pastor came by and mom went out and she came and walked back in with an envelope. She opened it up and there was three crisp $20 bills, a $10 bill, and 17 ones in the envelope. And she didn't say a word. And the kids didn't say a word. And it was really quiet that night. She writes, we never thought of ourselves as being poor. But I guess we were that poor family in the church. And she writes, I got up the next morning and I didn't even want to go to school. And that week was a long week and we didn't say much. Well, the next Sunday, Mom said, we're going back to church. So they went back to church and they walked in. There was a missionary speaker. He talked about people in Africa who had mud huts and, and, and that for $100, you could put a roof on one of these houses. And the pastor said, well, let's, let's take an offering. And Mom smiled and looked out at the girls and they passed out three $20 bills, a $10 bill and 17 ones and put it in the offering. Well, at the end of the service, the pastor got up and said, we received a little over $100. The missionary got up and said, wow, he said, we must have some really rich people in this church. The girls thought, we gave 87 of that 100. We must be the rich family he's talking about. And suddenly it struck them. And she writes in the end of her diary, deep down, deep down I knew that we were actually a rich family. You can't read through Ephesians 1. You can't be looking into the riches of God's grace this morning and not look at yourself and go, wow, I am... I am so rich. And so this morning, I pray that you would comprehend, as Paul's going to pray just a few verses down the road, that we would have the eyes of our heart would be open so we can see the amazing depth of God's generosity and there's riches to us as God's people. Father, this morning, I thank you for this Amazing little book in the New Testament. And this first chapter is just so overwhelming. As Paul goes from one blessing to another blessing to another blessing. And Lord, we confess that we, we can get so caught up in what we don't have. All the temporal things that, that don't go the way we'd like them to and forget. 
that you have blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, priceless gifts, gifts that no circumstance can touch, gifts that are there, they'll never spoil or fade or perish. So, Lord, just open our eyes this week to the abundance that we have. Lord, make us generous and willing to share that with people around us. We just thank you for your goodness to us. Father, I pray for anyone here today who is not in Christ, who's never placed their faith in Christ's work on that cross, who've never trusted him and received uh, your grace and all that goes with that. So let might they just through a simple, sincere prayer of the heart, Lord, today invite you to be Lord and Savior of their life and to bless them in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.